Hello everyone, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenew.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to the very first sermon from The Mind Renewed. Now, it will probably not have escaped the attention of many of you that although this podcast has been going for a few months now, and one of the aims is clearly to provide sermons, the one thing that has remained conspicuous by its absence is precisely the sermon. And that has to do with the difficulty that I've had in conceiving of what a sermon should be like inside a podcast, because it's one thing to preach in church buildings and different denominations, which I've been doing for the last 14 years or so, where most of the people have at least a familiarity with church culture, but it's quite another thing to preach in the global context of a podcast where anyone, believer, non-believer, maybe believer, a different kind of believer, maybe different kind of believer, or whatever variant you can think of, may well be listening in, and that makes the task, as you can imagine, considerably more difficult. But I'm going to start anyway, so I've got to start at some point, so this is where I'm going to start. But let me just briefly say what a sermon is, because I'm not assuming that everyone will have heard one before, and I'm deliberately giving the briefest description I possibly can in the interests of time, but I do intend to go into a bit more detail in an audio blog in the near future. So just two things. Number one, a sermon is a talk that is based upon a source of spiritual authority. In this case, the Bible, which is, of course, a collection of foundational Jewish and Christian writings, but it is a talk that is considering portions of those writings in relation to the world we live in. All right. It's not just an abstract discourse on on a text. Okay, it relates to the world that we live in. Secondly, why do I consider the Bible a source of authority? Again, this is such a complex issue with so many questions to address that it would take hours to deal with it adequately. So I can only sketch the very faintest outline of the logic as I see it. The Bible is not a magic book. I do not pick it off the shelf and say, I just choose to believe this. Nor do I say because I first believe in this magic book and Jesus is written about in this book, therefore I've got to believe in Jesus. It works much more like this. The New Testament is widely recognized by professional historians, and that includes unbelieving historians as well, to contain at least a sufficient amount of true historical information about Jesus of Nazareth for us to form a reasonably accurate impression of what he did and said and the claims he made about himself. It is then a matter of personal judgment. Do I believe his claim to be the Son of God, or do I not? Now, obviously, my judgment is, yes, I do believe that claim. And at that point, it becomes reasonable to conclude that the God whose Messiah Jesus claims to be has vouchsafed to us the writings that testify about him. Now, there are all sorts of issues that could be raised at that point. And as I say, I haven't time to go into them at the moment, but I do hope that as this podcast continues that I will be going into some of those in the future. But I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to read two portions of the Scripture, first of all from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, and then from the New Testament. First of all from Psalm 62, and I'm going to read verses 5 to 12. Now, the Psalms, of course, were originally written with the idea of them being sung. And you'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to sing to you. This is attributed to King David. Well, whoever it was, Psalm 62, verses 5 to 12 go like this. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. 
Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath, the high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing, together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Okay, and then I'm going to turn to the New Testament. And here, this is one of the letters of Paul. Paul, of course, being originally a Pharisee who was opposed to Christians and then had a life-changing experience on the road to Damascus where he met the risen Christ and then became perhaps the greatest apostle of Christianity, setting up churches all around the Mediterranean area and one in Corinth. And here we have the first letter to the Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, and I'm reading from chapter 7. And I'm reading verses 29 to 31, so just a a few verses, very, very short. It's in a passage here that's extremely difficult to interpret. Paul is saying some very, very difficult things, so please don't take these words at face value. I hope to make sense of them in a minute. So these three verses, 29 to 31. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world, in its present form, is passing away. Just under 20 years ago, the cultural commentator Melvin Bragg interviewed Dennis Potter, the TV playwright, a few months before Dennis Potter died. Now, I'd heard Dennis Potter interviewed a couple of times before, and I have to say I didn't really warm to him very much. He came over as quite arrogant and conceited, though he explained in this later interview that uh, this was a mask, really, for his natural shyness. But on this occasion, he was really quite different. He seemed much more relaxed and open and just really more friendly because of something that had changed him, that had given him a different perspective on his life. And that was, of course, the knowledge that he was going to die in a few months from cancer. And there's one thing that he said that will always stick in my mind, so I'm going to read what he said. Below my window in Ross, when I'm working in Ross, for example... There at this season, the blossom is out in full now, there in the west early. It's a plum tree. It looks like apple blossom, but it's white. And looking at it, instead of saying, oh, that's a nice blossom, last week, looking at it through the window when I'm writing, I see it is the whitest, frothiest, blossomest blossom that there ever could be. And I can see it. Things are both more trivial than they ever were and more important than they ever were. And the difference between the trivial and the important doesn't seem to matter. But the nowness of everything is absolutely wondrous. And if people could see that, you know, there's no way of telling you. You have to experience it, but the glory of it, if you like, the comfort of it, the reassurance. Not that I'm interested in reassuring people. The fact is, if you see the present tense, boy, do you see it. And boy, can you celebrate it. His perspective on life had changed because of what he knew. And what he knew, of course, was that he didn't have much time. Now, Paul, in this text that I read, is advising his people in the Christian community at Corinth that they also need to have a changed perspective because they don't have much time. He says to them, after he's been teaching all sorts of very difficult things, he says, what I mean, brothers, is the time is short. In other words, the reason why I've been teaching all these extremely difficult things is is precisely because I'm concerned about you 
because you don't have all that much time. What I mean is the time is short. Now, it's not absolutely certain what Paul meant by that. He might have meant there's a great deal of persecution coming down the line, so you just basically need to get ready for it. But he might have meant the time is short because he believed that Jesus was going to return soon. Now, I know that that's something that sometimes causes people a lot of problems because they think, well, Jesus obviously didn't return soon. And in fact, the second coming has still not happened. So obviously, Paul just got this wrong. Well, I'm not quite sure why this is such a problem, because Christians are all called in every generation to anticipate the return of Christ, to interpret the signs of the times, as it says in the New Testament. Indeed, that's one of the things which motivates the Mind Renewed podcast itself. But if it turns out that Jesus doesn't return in our generation, then well, so what? I mean, we've done our duty. Paul did his. And the fact is, it's going to happen in some generation or other. So I just don't actually see that this is a great problem, really. But he might also have meant the time is short in the sense that nobody actually has all that long to live. I mean, especially in the ancient world. And sorry, I know it's not very nice to remind us of this fact, but, you know, even in the modern world, even if we're lucky enough to be living in one of the richer areas of the world, you know, if we're honest, we know life is unpredictable. In some ways, it's precarious. None of us knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, probably he meant all of those things, but it doesn't really matter in a way because the message is the same for all of us. The time is short, so get a changed perspective. So what is that changed perspective? Well, Paul tells us, and he gives us this list of examples. And let's be absolutely clear about this. This is a list of exaggerated examples. You know, Paul was a highly trained Pharisee. He was completely familiar with Jewish styles of teaching. And the use of exaggeration is absolutely typical. Jesus did it. Many of you will recall when Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. I don't think I've ever heard anybody uh, think that Jesus actually meant that literally, that if you offend God by the use of your right eye, that you should, I don't know, get hold of a spoon or something and, and physically remove your eye from its socket. This is hyperbole. It's exaggerated language to make you sit up and take the point. And this is what Paul is doing here. He says, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Now, obviously, we're not going to take that literally, at least I hope not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. He is saying that somehow or other, we need to live with a degree of detachment from the world around us. Even from things that are familiar to us. Even from things that mean a lot to us. We've to learn to hold things lightly, as I'm putting it. To hold on to things with a light touch. And it's really easy to get Paul wrong at this point. I think that he's saying something like, you should be completely detached from life. You shouldn't enjoy anything. You know, um, have a, a severe kind of monastic, ascetic existence. Don't get involved in anything political. Don't be concerned or active with respect to any injustices or abuses going on in the world around us. Just remain splendidly aloof. Now, he is not saying anything of the kind. He is using this hyperbole to make his point. And the point, I think, is encapsulated in the last phrase. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. We are to enjoy things. We are to benefit from God's creation. Indeed, we are to be actively concerned and involved in what's going on in the world. But we're not to be engrossed. Now, reading from my dictionary here, the word engrossed is rendered to absorb the whole attention of, to absorb the whole powers of. In other words, we're not to be obsessed be completely eaten up by all our concerns. We have to hold things 
with a certain degree, a certain lightness of touch. And that means everything. Our possessions, our careers, our lack of career, our dreams, our activism, even the people we love, even though, of course, we should love people intensely. Because, as Paul says, the world in its present form is passing away. Nothing in life is permanent. Life does have a habit of letting us down. I mean, even if our, our bodies eventually let us down in the end, you know. So Paul is saying our ultimate security cannot rest in this world. It has to be in something or rather someone who transcends this world, who is not subject to passing away. So the picture here is of being deeply concerned, active in the world, if you like, getting our hands dirty in the stuff of the world and enjoying the beauty of the world, and yet having this degree of detachment where we have a kind of anchor hold somewhere else, if you like, in the transcendent that cannot be moved. And thus, ultimately, we cannot be moved either. When I lived in London in the late 1980s, I got to know a man called Brian Austin, who, with his wife Christine, ran a Christian bookshop in Camden Town. Now, you may in fact have heard Brian's voice because I mixed it with the theme music to some of the podcasts. And in fact, Brian was the first person to alert me to the existence of the New World Order. And they did a lot of work with down and outs, drug addicts and alcoholics. And Brian said to me that many of these people were in that situation because of some great tragedy that had happened in their lives. So maybe their wife had left them or a child had died or something horrendous like that. And understandably, they weren't able to cope. And so they ended up on the streets. And he said, and this wasn't just theory, that they've proven this time and again over about 15 years of ministry. He said that the key to helping many of these people is to get them to understand one main thing. And I almost don't want to say this because it's going to seem really trite, but I have to say it because this is what he said to me. He said they, they need to come to know this one main thing, and that is that they are loved by God. Now, let me translate that because those words, love and God, they're huge switch-off words. I'm completely aware of that. Let me just say it differently. They need to come to know that they are highly regarded by the transcendent creator of all things. To believe that the creator, the source of all being, is real, is there, and highly regards them. And he said that that enables many of them to begin re rebuilding their lives. It doesn't sort everything out for them, of course, but it just allows them that freedom to start making those first steps into a new life. Now, I think that when any of us comes to know this creator of all things highly regards us, and values us, and we let that knowledge become part of us, I think that can free us too. Because then, you see, we don't need to hold on tightly anymore to things, to structures, to people, what people think of us. None of that is our security anymore. We're secure anyway, because the transcendent creator loves us and values us. And the psalmist has come to understand this. One thing God has spoken, two things I've heard, he says, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. In other words, God is able and willing to help us. And so the psalmist doesn't have to place any fundamental confidence in this world. Just listen again to what he says. If weighed on a balance, he says, all people are merely a breath. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. So he enjoys the blessings of this life, but he refuses to be defined by those things. He has learnt to, as I say, hold things lightly. He's free. 
He's fully involved, but he's free because he knows the truth, that transcendent truth that is the anchor hold for his life. And you remember what Jesus said about that? Pointing, of course, to himself as the embodiment of that truth, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But this is knowledge that the world does not want us to enjoy. Now, when I say world, I mean it in the sense that the New Testament does. It doesn't just mean the stuff of the cosmos. It means the stuff of the cosmos insofar as it's opposed to God's purposes and influenced or inspired by spiritual forces that are opposed to God's purposes. So it's really quite a complex term. So the world is always saying to us, and let me personify it for a moment, it's always saying to us in a million different ways, you've got to hold on tightly. You are defined by your possessions. You know, if you haven't got money, well, who are you? Your value comes from, say, your important friends or your career. Well, if you haven't got those, well, you're nothing, are you? You don't matter. But again, the psalmist says, no, my salvation and my honor depend on God. My honor, my value depends on God, not on any of that kind of thing. But as I say, this is knowledge that the world does not want us to know. Now, let me just pick three examples pretty much at random. Number one, Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist and former professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University. Now, in one of his many TV presentations, he characteristically said, life is just bytes and bytes of digital information. Secondly, James Watson, co-discoverer of the structure of DNA with Francis Crick back in the 1950s. He was asked in a TV interview what he thought the purpose of life was, what human beings are for, and this is his reply. I don't think we're for anything. We're just products of evolution. And you can say that you think your life must be pretty bleak if you don't think there's a purpose, but I'm anticipating a good lunch. So, okay, in one sense, an amusing comment, but it's also a pretty sad comment because is that really you and me summed up? We're just products. We're just information. And of course, the whole problem with those statements is the word just. R.J. Berry, uh, former professor of genetics at University College London, describes this attitude as nothing buttery. You know, when people say we're nothing but chemicals, nothing but animals, nothing but information, etc. He says it's nothing buttery. I am completely happy with the fact that I'm made up of physical substances and complex patterns of information. I've got no problem with that whatsoever. But is that all I am? And how does it follow from any of that that I have no purpose? How does what I'm made of, or the processes by which many believe I came into being, have anything whatsoever to tell me about the purpose or the meaning of my existence or the value of my life? Certainly science can't tell me anything about that kind of thing. No matter how powerful science is, and it's enormously powerful, it is a collection of methodologies to find out stuff about this world. If meaning and value and purpose transcend this world, science can have nothing to say about it. Number three, Paul Ehrlich, professor of population studies at Stanford University. In his 1968 book, The Population Bomb, he writes about humanity in the following glowing terms, quote, a cancer is an uncontrolled multiplication of cells. The population explosion is an uncontrolled multiplication of people. We must shift our efforts from treatment of the symptoms to the cutting out of the cancer. The operation will demand many apparently brutal and heartless decisions. The pain may be intense, but the disease is so far advanced that only with radical surgery does the patient have a chance of survival." Unquote. 
a comforting thought echoed only a few years later by the Club of Rome, the elitist global think tank which presumes to advise on how best to balance humanity with the environment in one of its most famous publications, Mankind at the Turning Point. The Earth has cancer, and the cancer is man. Now, even if you believe human population growth should be controlled in some way, why liken human beings to a cancer? I mean, at best, the analogy is a bad one, but at worst, it's deeply offensive, because there's nothing good about a cancer. It has no redeeming characteristics whatsoever. It's just there to be got rid of. So what kind of message does that language send out to people about the value of their lives? I think people could be forgiven for reading it as, well, I haven't got any value. In fact, I'm worse than valueless. In fact, I'm in the way. I'm a cancer. And I often think to myself, how can we expect people to live responsibly and have fulfilled lives when they're told, your life is meaningless? And I think of the kids that I've taught in school over the years. What effect does it have on a, a sensitive teenager when they, t they turn the TV on and find some expert telling them they have no value? Why are we surprised if they end up doing drugs or vandalising property or not caring anything about what's going on in the world? Why not? They don't mean anything. And if we ever end up with a situation where most people believe that human life has no transcendent value, well, God help us all, what kind of world would that be? A world perhaps in which our lives are to be measured by the technocrats, who have nothing by which to measure our worth than the variables of this world. Jesus' message is exactly the opposite of all this. In fact, that we are so valuable that the author of this world, as it were, wrote himself into the story of this world and visited us in the person of his son, Jesus, and gave himself for us. As it says in John's Gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. My salvation and my honour come from God, said the psalmist, because you, O God, are strong and you, O Lord, are loving. One of the consequences of believing that you are nothing is to tend to make you hold on tightly to everything that you have, everything that you, you think you are in terms of status in this world, to grip on to what you've got, to paralyze you in terms of what you can actually achieve in this world, because you think there's nothing else. But we can know we're loved. We can therefore be free to release our grip on the things around us, so that even while we are fully involved in this world, fully active in this world, we shall not be shackled by it because the only thing we're holding on to tightly is our transcendent creator in whom our true value is to be found. Mm -hmm.